During the second weekend of September 1969, Talladega Super Speedway, then known as Alabama International Motor Speedway, was set to open to the public for its inaugural Talladega 500. It was to be the biggest and fastest speedway on NASCAR's then 54 race schedule, and many of those were short tracks and intermediate speedways. It is still the biggest oval on NASCAR's Cup Series schedule, now at 36 races. During that memorable weekend, it was a showdown between Bill France Sr., founder of NASCAR and builder of the track, and the drivers that competed in the Cup Series, then known as the Grand National Division. The wheelmen of that era faced many concerns, and as a result, they met and formed what was called the Professional Drivers Association, referred to as the PDA. Race car safety, purse payouts, lengthy week-long schedules were just a few of the topics of discussion in 1969. The PDA was officially incorporated in August of 69 with Richard Petty named president of the organization. Drivers were becoming upset and wanted to unify to send their voices to Mr. France and tell him their grievances about what was going on behind the scenes and what they weren't happy about. Meetings were held prior to the Southern 500 at Darlington Raceway on September 1st to sign more drivers into the PDA membership. Practice began at Talladega on Tuesday, September 9th with qualifying schedule for Wednesday, September 10th. The racing surface on the 2.66 mile oval was immediately deemed too rough with patchwork in places in the turns that made cars break loose, causing parts under the cars to be damaged due to vibrations. Tire manufacturers Goodyear and Firestone gave it their very best efforts to build tires that would hold up at 190 miles an hour with engineers working day and night trying to make it happen, but lap after lap, tires simply would not hold together. The track's rough surface was chewing them up and pieces were coming off the tires and after, after only three to five laps. And that happened a lot, especially on the right fronts due to the downforce loads they were having to carry. The PDA voted finally on Friday evening, September 12th to withdraw from the race. Then on Saturday morning, the PDA met one more time with France, hoping that something could be worked, some kind of resolution, but they knew it wasn't going to come. Firestone withdrew from the race, as did Goodyear. France said the tires were being cut by some foreign substance, which was a complete surprise to both tire companies. The tire executives were shocked by the statement as Goodyear offered yet another set of tires for all cars by Saturday afternoon. The third round of Goodyear tires arrived, but it was too late. Petty held a final PDA meeting to see which drivers were gonna stay and which ones were leaving. Ironically, many Cup Series drivers and race cars left the garage while 13 Cup Series drivers remained with their automobiles. Campaigning Grand National American cars were there for the Saturday afternoon event, and they did pull it off. And a gentleman by the name of Ken Rush from High Point, North Carolina did win that event. But their speeds were around 150 miles an hour and their cars were much lighter. Let's put it this way. It's a great story to get into, and we wanna share it with you on this version of a lifetime in motorsports. So with that said, Talladega Super Speedway began with emotional turbulence and blistered tires before decades of exciting races 
at Talladega Super Speedway. So get into it with us and let's, let me tell you all the great stories about this particular weekend in September of 1969. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we are talking about episode number 81. That's right, 8-1. We're getting one step closer to that magic number of episode 100, but we're on episode 81, and we got a very interesting episode today. Um, we're going to talk about the 1969 race at Talladega. Now, you might say, okay, well, and especially if you're a new NASCAR fan, why why is that race so important? Well, there was a lot of things going on back then. Um, uh, there was a uh, a union issue with the NASCAR. There was, um, you know, all kinds of things going on that, um, you know, it's one of those things where it was kind of buried in NASCAR legacy, NASCAR lore, because a lot of people in NASCAR don't really want to talk about it. But we're going to talk about it because there's a certainly a, a, a number of good backstories to uh, what happened in that race, what led up to that race, what happened after that race. And um, there's kind of a little bit of a similarity in some of the modern day, uh, you know, things we're having today where you know, there was some communication issues and, uh, you know, NASCAR vowed to, you know, talk, uh, have better communication back then, kind of like what they're saying today as well, too. So. Ben, let's let's talk about this 1969 uh, uh, race at Talladega. I mean, again, you know, it, it was more than just a race. It was more than just a race at Talladega. It was really a race that kind of changed the the landscape for a lot of people, and it definitely changed the landscape for NASCAR NASCAR drivers. You know, the um, you know the the money, the way money was was parceled out. Let's talk about that race. What what made that race so unique? Well, I tell you what, Jerry, it, it actually goes a little bit further back than than the Talladega 500, uh, which actually occurred on September 14th, 1969 at uh, what was then the Alabama International Motor Speedway until the, the name was changed to Talladega Super Speedway many, many years later. But let's go back just a little bit further than that race. It actually... Uh, was kind of brewing a little bit before that. Uh, let's go back to early summer of 1969, and there were some drivers uh, not so happy with some things that were going on in NASCAR at that time. There mm -hmm. was a, a guy named Pete Hazelwood, who was a driver, Ed Negree. We've heard of him uh, as sort of a backmarker driver for years. And then there was Haas Ellington. And a lot of people don't realize, uh, they, they know that Haas Ellington was a team owner for Donnie Allison for for many years, but Haas Ellington actually was a driver back in the early or to mid sixties, late sixties and the sixties decade, I should say, before mm -hmm. he turned team owner. But those three drivers uh, actually walked away from some races at South Boston and, and Bowman Gray stadium and Asheville Weaverville uh, just in protest because they weren't happy about some of the purses that were being paid and, and and there was some other drivers, Kale Yarborough, Charlie Gottsback. They were concerned about some safety issues, and Bobby Allison was concerned about safety. And there were just some issues going on, and very reminiscent of some things that well, some drivers have discussed as of late mm -hmm. in 2022 concerning the Gen Seven car. 
And so 54 years later, we're having some of these same issues. And so, but back, back to that era though, that the timing of this entire endeavor, those situations are going on. And then if you go back just a little bit further back than 1969, actually May of 1968, mm-hmm. uh, actually the 23rd of May is when the, they had the groundbreaking for the Talladega Super Speedway. Bill France, Sr., founder of NASCAR and also builder of Talladega, uh, the, uh, the spades, shovels, uh, went into the ground and said, we're going to build this racetrack. Well, as it turned out, uh, the racetrack, uh, the, sure, there was some timing uh, going on. So we're looking at May of 68, and then we get to May 12th of 1969. The media is brought in. And this, uh, the uh, keep in mind, this is a mammoth racetrack, a little bit longer than what Daytona was, but they still did not have the pavement done by May of, May of 1969. But the media was invited to come along and look at it. As time uh, went on, the the asphalt was laid down, and uh, we're looking at probably July at this point. Bobby Allison takes a passenger car around the racetrack, and he comes back and says, "Now this is not a race car, but it's his own car." Mm-hmm. And says, "This track is extremely bumpy. This this it's not smooth. It doesn't even feel good at 75, 80 miles an hour in a, in a regular passenger car, let alone what's it going to feel like in a race car. So those issues I just mentioned about purse, about safety, uh, maybe some retirement type, uh, you know, issues as far as purses, uh, money set aside for some of that, a, a few other issues that drivers were having. So and you had mentioned the word union. It really wasn't a union that they tried to form. It was just like a driver's um, um, you know, organization. A driver's organization. organization. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was yeah, trying right. to come up with the right word, similar right. to what we have today. Uh, and and they were signing up drivers to say, look, we, we need to be unified, but we need to be careful. It's not a union because they got in trouble with, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, Curtis Turner and and Tim Flock back in right. 1961, right. when they did try to start a union, and of course they got banned from NASCAR uh, until 1965, when Bill France uh, Senior really needed Curtis Turner to come back, and he lifted that ban. It was a lifetime ban, and he lifted that. And Tim Flock was so upset about it, he never did come back. And, uh, but he, he too was had the, the band lifted from the 61 episode, but Tim said, no, I'm not coming back. So they wanted to be careful to not call it a union. It was more of an organization, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. So that's what the professional drivers association, the PDA was all about. And the president of that organization was Richard Petty. Mm-hmm. So Richard had put his neck on the line big time in this situation because he had just gone this was also a side story, major 69 story. He had gone from running Chrysler's from 1958 when he started to 1968. And then their car was not adequate. He didn't think to continue on. So he switches to Ford and that was, oh my gosh, that was a major, major story for 1969. And it was supposedly a million dollar contract for uh, Richard to run Fords that year. So if this PDA thing didn't pan out or 
was not uh, looked upon in, in a favorable way, he stood to lose a, a ton of money and also a, a really great reputation. So mm-hmm. he really put everything on the line to become president of the, of the PDA. So uh, a big story uh, was brewing. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you, if there's more questions you want to ask me going into the rest of it, that's, you can do that. But uh, I mean, this sort of set the foundation of what, for what was going on there. The, the, the fact that a guy like Petty, you know, like you said, stuck his neck out and, you know, a couple of things come to my mind. One, he obviously believed in what he, uh, in, in, in the position that he took. And number two, he also knew that he was standing up, not just for himself, because obviously he was the big star of the sport at the time, but he was also, you know, he was the de facto spokesperson for all the other drivers. He was the de facto representative for other drivers. Um, you know, th- that all that he did all that in, in hindsight, did he, and I, maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in asking you this, but did Richard, did he do anything to his reputation that may have taken a while to regain anything he might've lost because of, you know, his representation with the professional drivers organization and, you know, the, 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 the talk of the boycott and, you know, eventually, you know, they, they didn't show up and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what, what did that do for Petty's reputation is, you know, his, I mean, was it more um, something that was more within the drivers themselves? Was it more, fans that the fans really got into behind it or was more like i said just a driver kind of thing you know what i'm saying no i i really believe it was more of a driver thing Mm -hmm. i I think it was um uh if anything it might have helped richard's uh, reputation because uh you know the drivers really looked up to richard through Mm -hmm. those years and and uh, by 69 uh he had already won some championships a couple and of course, being uh, you know with Petty Enterprises and and had won a good many races by '69, I think he was well respected. And I think even coming out of the PDA, uh, which didn't last that long, I've actually heard two versions of this, and I'm not sure which one is more correct. I've heard people say the PDA didn't last but just a few months, and I've also heard that the PDA disbanded by the start of the 72 season, which is what, three years. Mm-hmm. So I honestly, to be quite frank about it, I don't know which one of those is more accurate, but, um, you know, there was, um, an article written for American racing classics, uh, magazine It's actually a hardbound, um, piece that was or a series of books that was done by Griggs publishing, in the early nineties and a great writer by the name of Gene Granger. I'm sure you're familiar with Mm -hmm. with Gene. Mm -hmm. And in that article, he had written that it would, it lasted till 1972. So I feel like that's pretty accurate. But not, but Uh, now, but, but Petty did not, Petty was not the president or in the figurehead for that entire time through 72. If I remember correctly, am I wrong about that? Or am I right? About I, that? I don't, I'm be honest with Jerry. I'm not sure. Okay. That's okay. I mean, he's, I just, he's the only president that I know of, of being the PDA. Okay. Then he may be, I guess he would he may have now. been. Okay. I don't know of after the Talladega incident though. I don't know of any other 
uprisings or any other problems uh, with the, the Talladega race in 69 uh, was the main uh, problem that the, that the PDA had to deal with. But it gets a lot deeper than what we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's it was crazy what happened that weekend. What now? Well, let's let's talk about that. I mean, the 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 fact that you know all these tens of thousands of fans buy race tickets, they go to Talladega expecting to see their heroes, and they're not there. And right. Bill, Big Bill France Senior, he's got a big problem on his hands. Um, what what happened that weekend? I mean, and, right. and how how quickly was both Bill France and NASCAR able to, for lack of a better word, rectify the situation with Petty with the Professional Drivers Association? Uh, you know that they were able to come well, back together so quickly. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a long story, and I'll try to condense it. But this is one of the issues that the drivers had. They, in those days, uh, and it had continued on for probably another maybe eight to 10 years this Mm -hmm. way, Mm -hmm. is that drivers would have to show up on Wednesday and they would qualify 10 or 12 cars. And then they would come back on Thursday for second round and qualify 10 or 12 cars. You and I both covered that. Right. Where they would be, um, you know, just stretch this out. Well, then because they had gotten word from Bobby Allison, that this track was not going to do well with these race cars. People started showing up on Monday, the 8th of September. Now the race was the 14th. Mm -hmm. So people and the media started showing up and checking into hotel rooms on Monday, the 8th. So cars were already there on the 9th of September, which was a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So these cars were already starting to take to the track. And, um, and I've heard this said, and this was not accurate, Firestone and Goodyear both were there at their track and they were people who tried to paint this as a tire war. It wasn't a tire war at all. What was going on was these track, these, these tire manufacturers also got word that the track was not, that the asphalt had not cured well enough. Um, because drivers had said, you don't need to be racing on this track until at least 19 early 70 march of 70 maybe because this track is not ready mm-hmm. and my understanding was that bill france senior had put every dime in that he had basically into this racetrack uh because i mean he really needed to race this weekend for gate receipts and there was only sixty thousand people at this track now this this track will hold a hundred and sixty thousand, right right but right. are more or more and that weekend, there was only 60,000 people there. So he, he needed everybody with a pulse, okay? He needed everybody to come through those gates. But the bottom line was that the asphalt on this uh, particular uh, track was not curing the way it should have. And it was hot. It was, uh, it was May, um, you know, in, in May and June and July, it had been hot. It, the bottom line is this track was just not curing like it should have. Okay. Right. So we're Monday, the eighth, Tuesday, the ninth, yeah. Wednesday, the 10th, uh, Thursday, the 11th. These, these are days where cars were already on the racetrack and they would go out there anywhere from three to 10 laps. If you were lucky, you could get 10 laps and these tires were blistering terribly mm-hmm. and tearing up after three to four laps. Okay. 
at speeds of 190 miles an hour. And it, they were running something called the T16 tire, which was a treaded tire, but it wasn't, um, it really was not a tire that was going to hold up on this particular track because of the bumpiness, because it wasn't smooth. So, and there were patches in, in the track, in the, uh, in the asphalt. So for places that maybe had caved in a bit or whatever the case may be, the bottom line was it was bumpy and it hadn't cured well. So they would come back in and they would, you know, scratch their heads and say, what are we going to do? So Goodyear and Firestone both were there. Francie called them both in and said, I need your help. Okay, great. So they come in, they're trying their very best to come up with a, a tread that will work on this racetrack. Mm-hmm three to five laps tops and these these drivers are coming back in blistered tires and so that's the, the crux of the entire problem and so we so now we get to friday the 12th and there's you know by then you've got 13 or so cars qualified the field is going to be probably 36 38 cars but by friday you can only get 13 cars qualified Okay, the, things are not going well. And tempers are starting to get heated. Drivers are starting to get worried. Uh, things are not going well. And the, but, but the problem is they're not Goodyear and Firestone are not competing per se against one another. Sure, they want to come up with what they can come up with to, to make this race weekend work out. But it, they, they are really scratching their heads like the drivers trying to come up with a solution to this problem. I mean, they're, they're working together per se, because they're like, I, we don't have an answer to the question. And so they come, they go back and they look at what they have in stock and they bring another set of tires in Well, they're doing the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. And so by Friday afternoon, the PDA led by Richard Petty, uh, they've had meetings and, you know, it's like, what are we going to do? Cause we're, we don't feel comfortable. Matter of fact, there was a driver named John Sears who drove a number four Dodge out of Ellerby, North Carolina, the same place Benny Parsons was out of. Mm. And he was like, I can't even hold my car in the first turn. In other words, I'm blistering tires before I can even get half a lap on mm-hmm. my tires. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, James Hilton saying the same and, and, and Buddy Baker and David Pearson, David Pearson said he, he, he can't even get his car through the trial. He's trying to find a different groove. And he's like, I don't have time to look for a different groove. I'm just trying to get the car to make a lap, make two laps. I'm not racing the car. I'm just trying to survive. Right. So I don't crash. Right, right, right. So this is the dialogue that you're hearing from these drivers. So again, by the hour, things are not well. So meetings are taking place with France in his office with executives from the tire manufacturers. Uh, Richard Petty is holding meetings in the garage area. They're crowding around him. And he is periodically going back to France saying, what do we do? What can you offer? Well, of course, France is saying, give me more time. I need to run this race. And they're like, well, I don't know what you're going to run, but (laughs) it's not going to be us. Right. You know, those, one of those things. So, okay. And I'm, I don't mean to ramble here. I'm just trying to tell the story. 
So there's another part of this equation too. The Grand Touring or Grand American cars are there for a Saturday race. And what I'm mm -hmm. talking about there are the Mustangs, the AMC Javelins, the Mercury Cougars, those types of cars uh, are there, but they're the lighter cars. They're not like the Roadrunners and the Wing Dodges and those types of cars. So they, they are able to race on Saturday but Richard Petty, by this point on Saturday morning, I'm trying to condense the story a bit. By Saturday morning, they've the PDA has already had a vote in their hotel rooms uh, over in Pell City saying that, okay, we're walking tomorrow morning if they don't have some solution. Well, Firestone has already said we're gone. We can't come up with it. And Goodyear has gone to Bill France's office to say the same thing. But then Bill France says, well, it's some type of foreign substance in the track. And they're like, what? What are you, <laughs> that, what are you talking about? That's not, that's not what's tearing up the tires. It's, right, the, right. it's that's, that's nuts. That it's not it. That's it's something. It, it's the track, but it's not some foreign substance in the track. So Goodyear's like, holy cow, what's he talking about? So they come up with a third set a third tire that they go back and bring in. But by this time, the drivers, the, the cup series or grand national drivers, as they were called at that time mm -hmm. have said, done, we're, we're gone. And so, uh, you know, this is when they're crowded around France and the way the story goes is Bobby Allison stands in front of Bill France and says, you know, it's time to do something and say, well, you don't like what's going on and you have a chance to, to cut a trail and go. And somehow Leroy Yarborough gets involved and throws a punch and hits Bill France, you know, and knocks him down. And after that happens, it's just too much. And the drivers, you know, follow Richard Petty and they get in their trucks and they head home. But now, I've heard from a good source that that Bill France wanted Richard Petty to test, and they purposely left the radiator out of their car so they would they could honestly say that their car was not adequate enough to test because they didn't want to test. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't want to take a chance on destroying one of their Fords, and so they just they left the radiator out of it so that it wouldn't be there. So. I'll take a break and let you jump in. <laughs> this this reminds me a lot, <clears throat> and and I'm going, um, you know, we're I'm kind of pushing the clock forty, almost forty years um, forward, a similar situation, and and I think many of today's NASCAR fans who've been around in the sport for at least the last twenty years probably remember this is 2008 the brickyard 400 yeah very similar situation at least from a tires perspective i mean we didn't have the the issues of a, a driver organization or drivers walking or whatever but i right. remember that that instance at uh, at indianapolis very clearly because i was there i covered that and it was one of the most uh not only dramatic but one of the strangest um things i think i've ever covered in my entire career because you know much like the guys in in 69 in, in uh, talladega you know uh goodyear was down there at, at, at indy and they were trying to figure out what was going on and 
no one could figure out why the tires are blistering, why they were going away so quickly. I mean, some tires were lasting only three laps and then they were going yeah. away. So as it turned out, NASCAR and the drivers, um, and again, this was not a driver's um, organization situation like there was in Talladega in 69, but in 2008, when they had the Brickyard 400, uh, the drivers and NASCAR uh, and Goodyear all kind of decided, and more so NASCAR and Goodyear, uh, that they had no other choice. They wanted to put on a race, but, you know, how do you put on a race when your tires are blistering and falling off? So uh, Goodyear tried everything they had. They brought, in fact, they actually brought a whole, um, uh, I, I think it was like another trailer or two that they brought in from Akron. They actually had him uh, from a police escort that he actually came from all the way from Akron. Uh, I mean, they were, they were hauling butt, if you know what I'm saying, with that police escort right. uh, to get him to Indy. And, Again, it it they they could not figure out what was going on, and so bottom line, and like I said, a lot of the NASCAR fans who've been covering or been following this sport for the last twenty years probably remember this very well. Um, they wound up having competition cautions every ten to twelve laps. Yeah. Now, can you imagine going? Uh, I think if I remember correctly, the what is it, a hundred and um, uh, what is it, one hundred eighty-eight laps? I think it is at at um at uh, Indy for the uh, Brickyard 400, if I remember correctly. Can you imagine stopping or, or, you know, or having a competition caution every 10 to 12 laps to change tires because you had to, or else you yeah. know, you're going to have a flat tire. And there, and even, even with the competition cautions, there were still a lot of, um, uh, you know, tire issues, cars or, or tires were going flat. Guys were wrecking because of tires and that kind of thing. And I, it was just such a surreal day. I mean, I remember, you know, talking, and I'm not going to mention some of these names, but I mean, if I did, you, you'd know, people would know right away who so, you know, these people were. I went to some of the biggest names there were in terms of driver owners, I mean, drivers and owners and that kind of thing. And they were asking me what was going on because they didn't even know what was going on. And it was just such a, 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 a surreal, like I said, a surreal time. They eventually got the race in, but it was a race in name only. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, an embarrassment. So it, it was kind of like what you, you know, you're talking about in 69, you know, almost 40 years earlier, we finally got the race through and, um, you know, NASCAR learned a lot from that event. And they obviously learned a lot from the event in 2008 at the British yeah. 400 too. Right. Well, the thing in 2008, it's a strong comparison between 69 and 2008. The problem they had in 2008 was they had committed to uh, television, of course, and right. radio broadcast right. rights. Right. And they had no choice but to run the run the race. They couldn't just say, well, because we have the tire problem, we aren't going to run this race. Of course, they had, gosh, I don't know how many people, I don't know what the attendance was for that particular race that day, but a couple hundred thousand people there. And they had a, a bit of a quagmire on their hands because they had to run it. And uh, I do remember the race also. I did not attend that race, but I saw it. And where in the case of the 69 Talladega race, they, they did have the 60,000 people there. There was no television coverage of it. There, I've seen photos of the race. And, and looking back on it, um, by the time that the regular stars, again, Buddy Baker, Bobby Allison, um, David Pearson, mm -hmm. 
the the top the top guys uh, had loaded up and decided to go home um they i think if i'm not telling this incorrectly that third set of tires that goodyear brought were put on the cars and i'm pretty sure they were able to run but looking at the stats of the race and let me back up slightly okay they did run the uh grand american or grand touring cars on saturday Mm -hmm. And a guy named by uh, by the name of Ken Rush did drive and win that particular race. I think it was a 200 mile race. Okay, the cars. So Bill France says anybody who wants to be in this race tomorrow can run the Talladega 500 using those Grand American cars. And I think the inspections process was null and void. I mean, if mm-hmm. you had a car, you could run and fill out the field. There were 13 drivers that ran their cup series cars that did not walk away that stayed. And one of those was the pole sitter, uh, Bobby Isaac, who somehow by miracle was able to, to win the pole at 196 miles an hour. And by, and he was in a K and K Dodge and Harry Hyde was the crew chief. Now I'm, I don't know how many laps he ran. I think they were running like four laps in those days for pole, the average of those four laps, mm-hmm. but it was 196.386 was his pole speed. But the, as far as the, uh, the average speed of the race was 153.778. Now that's crawling around. Big Talladega. difference. Yeah. Right. Big difference. Now, let me go back just a second and tell you another little track fact about the race bill france said someone dared him to get in a car and said well if you think you can do it you drive so he brought in a home and <laughs> ford from somewhere and it was number 53 and it was a torino and he did get out there on the racetrack and he ran four or five laps at 150 miles an hour and that's what his argument was his argument says well all you got to do is just get off the, the gas pedal and we'll all run and have a grand old time but the drivers is like, you paid us to race. You paid us to come out here and put on a show for these fans at Talladega Super Speedway. But somewhere along the line on those four or five laps that he raced and came back and said, glory be, look how great this was. He blistered a tire at 150. <laughs> so, you know, it's like a right front blister. And that's where all of your downforce, mm-hmm. of course, going into the turn is going to be is right there on that right front. So that was somewhat hushed up where, you know, they didn't want anybody to know, but the fact of the matter was the tires were just not holding up on these particular, and these uh, for another, and let's say this too, these, these cup series or grand national cars were heavier than the grand touring cars or grand American cars. That's another fact that needs to be said as well. Right. But the, 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 the majority of these guys did step away and did not race, but here's your, let me just give you a quick top 10 here. Okay. After all was said and done a guy by the name of Richard Brickhouse Brickhouse, race. Okay. Jim Vandiver, who was a steady cup series driver, didn't win. uh, But he ran there. Ramos Stott. You remember that name? Bobby Mm -hmm. Isaac did finish fourth. Dick Brooks was a regular campaigner in the cup series. Earl Brooks also uh, was a regular campaigner. Then a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Vaughn, Billy Hagan, who is the longtime 
uh, Cup Series owner for Terry Labonte. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in that race. Tiny Lund was uh, finished ninth. Cuckoo Marlin, who was the father of Sterling Marlin, who was a longtime Cup Series competitor, he finished 10th that day. But if you come down, uh, you know, there's a bunch of names that you wouldn't really recognize. Bill Ward, Ernie Shaw, Amos Johnson, Bobby Fleming, Ben Arnold. He was a Cup Series regular. Dr. Donald Tarr was also a Cup Series regular. Frank Sessions, Buck Baker, who's the father of Buddy Baker. He right. stayed behind. Right. Wilbur Pickett, Larry Bach, uh, Stan Starr, and here's another interesting one. Finishing 23rd, Richard Childress. Really? Yeah, Richard Childress, who who ran uh, a good many, I think it was 185 starts in the Cup Series before he turned his car over to uh, to, uh, uh, Dale Earnhardt in 1981. And he told, Richard told me, he said, that with the money that I won, which is $1,175 that day for finishing 23rd, he built his first race shop at RCR. And that was the foundation of RCR uh, by finishing 23rd that day. Now it's probably not in the same location, of course, but that was his first first one. So very quickly, you got CB Gwynn, Jim Herdebees, who also ran IndyCars, Earl Canavan, longtime Cup Series driver. Uh, Homer Newland, T.C. Hunt, Ray Broytiner was a Cup Series competitor. J.W. King, Bobby Brewer, Al Straub, Les Snow, Bob Burcham ran in the Cup Series. Doug Easton and Don Schleicher, I believe is the way you said it. But he drove a Bud Moore Mercury. And Bud Moore also ran in the, the Grand American cars with Tiny Lund and won championships. So that was the 36 cars uh, in the field that day. So, I mean, it was an interesting day, but I mean, but, you know, to, to uh, Bill France Sr.'s credit, he did salvage the race. Um, he always said he lost money on the deal. But a lot of people said, no, I mean, you, you gained a great deal of uh, uh, media exposure out of it and your track did uh, survive. But I do know that there were like some of the suites up there. Uh, the person who built the track as part of the deal because he had basically run out of money. I get one of the suites and that person who built the track still has that suite. And so, I mean, it was just a tough situation to be in. Fortunately, no one was injured or whatever, you know, because of it. And Talladega Super Speedway, the good news is the, ta- the Speedway has flourished tremendously. NASCAR has flourished tremendously. But people don't realize that there were some dark days in NASCAR's yep. history. But you have to take your hat off to people like the visionaries, like Bill France Sr. You imagine how difficult it is. Let's just take this example, building a house for your family, how difficult it is. And back in 1969, I have no idea what building a speedway would cost, but let's call it $6 million. I had no idea. I mean, in today's dollars, what is that? 20 million, 18 million or something. With inflation, we're talking 600 million. (laughs) I I don't know what it is. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is, but I mean, back in 1969 dollars, Lord, I mean, that's, that's hard. That's a mammoth 
amount of money that you got to come up with to build a 2.66 mile speedway. Right. And I mean, just hats off to these visionaries who built Michigan, who built Daytona, who built Sonoma, who built, you know, the Bruton Smiths and the, and the Bill Francis and all these people who built the sport to what it is, the headaches. Can you imagine, you know, what they had to go through to, you know, and, and no sponsorships and no money and, and all that type of thing. But here's something else. I was talking to Humpy Wheeler at Charlotte this past weekend, and he's, he had a, a perfect thought about this and then nobody amazingly thought about it. And Humpy was working for Firestone at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, nobody thought about this. Nobody thought about restrictor plates back in 1969. And if they had thought about everybody put a restrictor plate on these engines in that Talladega 500, that might've solved the problem possibly, but maybe not because as I said, Bill France senior did blister a tire at 150 miles an hour, but the restrictor plate really didn't come into focus until 1987. Right. When, when Bobby Allison blew a tire, a, a right rear tire or left rear, I can't remember, but it, he got in the fence uh, late in the race uh, and then that's when they started thinking about restrictor plates for engines. And then that was part of the, of the landscape, but the, nobody thought about it back in those days. But the bottom line was that race because of the tire issues, uh, drivers walked away because they feared safety problems. And, and later on, uh, the PDA lasted, I think two or three years and it kind of quietly dissolved and other issues came up later. But an interesting, interesting weekend that uh, sadly had some problems and uh, they were rectified. And I guess we moved on to other problems. Well, you know, the one thing that that I I wonder about, Ben, and maybe you can uh, enlighten me on this. um, The original problem, though, seemed to stem from the racing surface itself, because Uh like you said, you know, uh, when Bobby Allison went out, he was talking about how bumpy it was and that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, the tires started blistering. It was, you know, it, no matter what kind of rubber they put on, the tires were not um, able to, you know, to mesh with the ground or with the surfaces, if you will. What did or what what did Talladega Super Speedway officials? What did NASCAR? Did they do anything to the racing service after that race in September of '69? Or was it just a matter of they needed curing for a year or two, and then it eventually evolved into a decent racing service? I mean, what? I, uh, I, well, that's a great question, Jerry. And I, my initial thinking on that is that I think curing, and I think giving it a couple of years. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't because I don't know that they had. I don't believe they had the technology to do anything. You know, if you think back to some racetracks, you know, um, 30 years later, if I'm not telling this incorrectly, you know, how they had machines where they could do some diamond cutting. Right. Exactly. Right. And they could do it, but I don't think they had that technology in 1969 and 70. My only guess would be, and this is an uneducated guess would be that they just simply let it cure better Mm -hmm. because early in the conversation, they were some drivers are saying, if you'll just let this thing cure until March of 70, um, give it a year to let it die down and 
let it cure and let it settle, mm-hmm. then you'll have a good racing surface. That's my guess. And I, I don't have anything to base it on and I'm not a, a civil engineer or anything to that. No shot at it, but I, I think that's what they probably did and let it just kind of cure itself out. And then it became better, but okay. I, what something was tearing those tires up so badly over that 2.66 mile surface over just a three, four laps and tire, not all four tires were blistering, not just one or two. It was tearing them up terribly. It would have been too cost prohibitive for them to basically resurface the track at that point. Right. Yeah. And, and that was another problem too. I mean, my understanding was Bill France senior, uh, as wise as he was, I mean, he had no more money. I mean, he was down to nothing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he, I don't know what it cost to, to pave it the first time, but there was just no more money. I mean, he was down to, you know, almost no, not having cups and straws. In the concession <laughs> right. stand. I mean, he just had nothing left. And there was just nothing to the point where they couldn't finish the sweets. You know, the people that were watching the race who had a sweet ticket, were watching it open air. They just right. didn't have, they didn't have any more money. Right. And I, I, he would have loved to have been able to, but even if, you know, they, even if he had had the money and the uh, capabilities to do it, the timing was not going to allow it and mm-hmm. to let it cure enough because that weekend they were having trouble with the track coming up, um, which is the worst possible thing can happen on a 2.66 mile track you know, where you're having to have cars dodging holes. I, I do know that there were some tracks, short tracks that drivers were driving on where they would have to dodge potholes on dirt tracks, which mm-hmm. is horrible to have to drive around, not at Talladega. But there were some places on the track that were potentially going to have potholes if they didn't patch them. So that, you know, that, that was the terror. And when they built Charlotte Motor Speedway in 1960, I do know that there was some pieces coming up that punctured Jack Smith's gas tank and they had to put a bar of soap in there. They tried it with Bud Moore, uh, tried to ran to the, sent somebody to the restroom to get a bar of soap to put in the hole and it didn't hold because wait, the wait, gas... wait, 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 wait. What, a bar of soap. I don't think yeah. I've ever heard. Well, tell me about it. Yeah. That. Yeah. What happened was, uh, the, a piece, a chunk of asphalt come up. He was leading the race. Jack Smith was leading the race at Charlotte in the first race and um a bar a chunk of asphalt came up and punctured the gas tank right and the only thing they could think to do was to go to the men's restroom and get a bar of soap and put stuff it up in the hole but the problem was the gasoline was dissolving the bar of soap too so quickly that it didn't hold and they ended up having to go pop out of the race and, and go to the garage area. That's I've true. never heard of it before. Yeah, that's that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. That is interesting. They had nothing else to stick in the hole. So there you go. Oh, that, wow. wow. I don't know what, I do not know what brand of soap it was. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, well, there was something called Octagon or something like that back in the sixties. Maybe it, something like that. Maybe that's what it was. Right. Right. Well, if I'm sure if I, if I'm the owner of the, this the soap company and, you know, and the word gets out that my soap is dissolving in the gas tank. That's not, I mean, even though it's a emergency, emergency situation, I don't know if I would want to have my name, my company's name or my brand of soap's name out there saying that because people, you know, they, they'd already immediately think, think of something negative of that too, you know. But, so, but think about how cool it would have been to think, you know, <laughs> our soap carried Jack Smith to the finish line. How great it would be to wash your body with 
this soap, it, it got him, <laughs> it, it got him the final hundred miles. You know, think about how great it would be on your skin, or I don't know, just a marketing that, thing. That that is that <laughs> you're a born marketer there, Brady. But you're definitely a born marketer. Uh, but but you know, anyway. go, going back to Talladega, and, and as we start ramping up here in this yeah. episode, you know the the um two things that come to mind. Obviously, number one, Richard Brickhouse, the winner of that race. I mean, uh, I had a chance to talk to Richard. Oh my God, I can't even think of how many years ago it was, but the one thing that he very, very proudly stated was that he was a Talladega winner. And, you know, he knew all about, you know, the, the PDA problem. He knew about the tire problem. He knew that, but he still walked away from there as being a Talladega champion and no one could ever take that away from him. And yeah, that to me, cause if I remember correctly, I think, that was either his only, or it might have been one of two cup wins in his career. But I mean, it, I think it might have been his only cup win. But um, you know it, that that he was so proud of winning that race. I remember, you know, uh, and again, we talked many, many years ago. But I just remember him discussing it that way and how how proud he was of 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 that. That that has to say a lot when when a guy is able to overcome all those other elements, you know, all the distractions, all the problems and still went up being a Talladega winner yeah, and, yeah. and the first Talladega winner on top of it all too. Yeah. But I hate to put, take some air out of that balloon, but Uh-oh. there was also, there was also a controversy. Uh, I need to point this out. There was a controversy at the end of the race because uh, Jim Vandiver, who uh, was the second place finisher in the race was also uh, in a Dodge and a, a year earlier, I, I think a Dodge that was, uh, well, it was a 69 Dodge, but not the the winged Dodge. And he claimed that uh, he was a lap ahead mm-hmm. of uh, Richard Brickhouse. Oh, that's right. First, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and he said that the Chrysler folks, uh, the Dodge people wanted uh, Brickhouse to win because he was driving a newer model. That was the winged Dodge. And that's why they screwed up the scoring. And he sadly went to his dying day claiming that he was the winner of the Talladega race. So that was a little, I mean, the, the, that particular afternoon and that particular weekend was nothing but controversy. Yeah, exactly. And, but you're right. I mean, Richard Brickhouse, uh, of course, stuck to his guns and claimed, no, that wasn't the truth. We won it. And um, uh, Ray Fox, who owned Jim Vandiver's car, who was the team owner, swore up and down that he was the winner of the race and Jim Vandiver was the winner of the race. And he too went, uh, his dying day saying that we won that race. So, uh, yeah, that in, instead of being called the Talladega 500, it should have been called the controversy 500 <laughs> because it was just everywhere Bill France turned that weekend. It was some headache that he had to take some kind of headache powder for, cause it right. was just, he was, I'm sure he was glad that one was over, but yeah. And, but anyway, Richard Brickhouse from, was from a, a place called Rocky Point, North Carolina and sort of Eastern North Carolina, um, not quite to the, all the way to the coast, but, um, we, you know, we went down to, when I was NASCAR illustrated, we went down to maybe interview him and try to find him a couple of times and just, were not able to connect, but very nice gentleman, you know, um, uh, you know, we, you know, I've, I've met 
at him in time or two myself, like you. Mm-hmm. Very nice and like I said, very proud of the victory. But uh, we a couple of times we tried to find him, we just not we're not able to connect. But, right, uh, right, right. Well, yeah. you know, in conclusion here, Ben, maybe before we move into you know, talking about the number eighty-one car number, um, yeah. you know, Talladega obviously has gone on to become one of the greatest tracks on the circuit, and you know, uh, it, it's it's almost like a um, I, I don't want to say it's an example, another example of, um, you know, bad turning to good, but we've had a lot of, you know, big tracks that have had, you know, early issue, early on issues like, you know, uh, Daytona had some issues in, in their, you know, as they were getting uh, under construction, same thing with the uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway. I mean, yeah. I know uh, it, it's, it's kind of ironic that some of our marquee, tracks today almost didn't make it almost you know you know they they either ran out of money or were close to running out of money or they were close to being bankrupt or they had the tire issues like Talladega or you know didn't have the drivers show up I mean it's 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 so ironic that you know these these tracks have bounced back from adversity and become you know the 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 shining stars of the racetracks we we call home today uh, in the series today you know what yeah. I'm saying yeah, I do. And I think the reason partly was that because, you know, it's the old saying, what I do not understand, I will oppose. And I think people in that era just had never seen a race and never mm-hmm. seen a stock car and never really understood what racing was about. And and when you go to a bank and try to get funding for something like that, the people just didn't understand it when in the early 40s and, and or late 40s and early 50s and it was just tough to find mm-hmm. funding for that kind of thing. It was like, a, you know, a, something that they couldn't imagine. And the, those people like France and Bruton Smith and the type people who are visionaries could see it and other people couldn't see it. Yep. And it just took so much to sacrifice, like building a railroad out West, you know, just, you know, just all the obstacles that you come up with uh, that you had to face. And now, I mean, you look at all these tall, tall, tall buildings. And when people couldn't envision railroads and tall buildings, it's like now it's like, well, what, what was the big fuss about? You know, the same thing. It's just, mm-hmm. But you're right. So many of those speedways just um, had to go through so much adversity. And then now they're just like staples, uh, part of the foundation of the sport. And you, you, th- you couldn't imagine them not being there. Exactly, exactly. All right, as we normally do on every episode of a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast, we always like to uh, kind of wrap things up by talk by kind of combining the episode number of the podcast with a car number that corresponds with that episode. So this is episode 81 and we're going to talk about episode, or car number 81 in NASCAR history and before we get into, you know, uh, you know the the history of the number 81 I just want to go through some of the names, uh, that, you know, of this car, and you know, the the the, car, the number eighty one is raced. It made three hundred starts, one win, six top fives, thirty eight top tens, three poles, and you know, here's some of the guys that you know. Um, for the most part, there it was not a lot of bigger names, if you will, but there were there were some names that kind of you know that got my attention as I was going through the list here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jack Ingram drove it for a couple of times, um, you know, and then as we go down further down the list, one guy whose name is stuck stuck out to me, um, you know, there's John Andretti, the late John Andretti, great guy. I mean, uh, you know, we miss him a lot. 
Kenny Wallace drove that number 81 for several years yep. uh, in the Cup Series. And then uh, we also, as I go down the list here, Scott Riggs. Uh, whatever happened to Scott Riggs? There's another guy that I'm wondering about. J.J. Yaley drove that car a few times. Kerry Labonte drove it in 2010. Um, and then Elliot Sadler in 2013. And the final time that we've seen the number 81, Jeffrey Earnhardt drove it at Talladega uh, in the April race in 2019. But you know, let's let's talk about the first time the the number eighty one you know showed itself on a racetrack. When was that, Ben? And and tell us about that and and you know the both the first start and also the first and only win for that car as well, too. Sure will. There was a gentleman by the name of Pappy Huff, and he was in a Plymouth. There was a hundred mile race at Vernon Fairgrounds in Vernon, New York, and. Uh, only ran two NASCAR races there, uh, as far as NASCAR events held at Vernon, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Sunday, June 18th, 1950. And it's the sixth race of the 1950 NASCAR Grand National Series. First time the number 81 ran. And then a gentleman by the name of Danny Graves, uh, put the, uh, number 81 in victory lane. It's the only time that the number 81 went to victory lane. It was September 8th, 1957 at California Fairgrounds in Sacramento, California. And again, the driver was Danny Graves. It was a 100-mile race at the California State Fairgrounds. And again, September 8th, 1957, the race 43 of the 1957 NASCAR Grand National Series. And I'm going to make both of us feel really old because that was 65 years ago. Wow. 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 (laughs) Yes. And only one win for number 81 is 65 years ago. Wow. 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 Well, after 81, obviously, next uh, the next episode of the Lifetime in Motorsports podcast will be ep- uh, episode number 82. And looking forward to talking about that. But really learned a lot about, uh, you know, the Talladega situation in 69. And, we, and um, you know, I knew quite a bit already. But, uh, you know, Ben, I mean, it, it, it's always great, uh, you know, with you on the show as a co-host because, you know, you have, know so much uh, about these events, you know, the the even the the you know the the, the minutiae. But I mean, you know the background of the story, but you know the back backstories of the story, which is <laughs> great. So, you yeah. know, I mean, um, you know, and and the thing is, like I said a few minutes ago, you know, it, it it's just it, it almost seems that for a track to become great, it has to go through struggles to get to that greatness. And Talladega was, you know, the perfect example. I mean, the first race ever, they have all that controversy. They have all the tire issues. They, they lose, you know, the, the marquee drivers, but you know, now today it's, you know, without question, one of the the greatest tracks on the circuit. And, you know, if, uh, if, if fans, if you've never had a chance to go to Talladega, trust me, this is an experience you will never, ever forget. I mean, And Ben, I I think I've told you this before, and I've said this to many, many people, but Talladega, to me, uh, two two quick stories I'll give you about Talladega. Number one, first time I ever went there was 2001, I believe it was. And I remember going through the tunnel, and so I get into the infield. I looked around, you know, in my car. I've actually pulled over to uh, to the side uh, off of the, you know, the, the access road. And I pulled over, and I got out of my car, and I looked around, I says, my God, I could have put a whole third world country in this place. This place is so big, you know, I mean, Jesus, it was, it was massive, you know, and, 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 you know, I had a chance to drive around through the pits, you know, I got there really early. So, you know, I really didn't interfere with anything, but I mean, I, you know, I I shouldn't say the pits, but I mean, the, you know, all the, uh, you know, where all the people, you know, the campers and all that kind of thing did. And it's like, 
I kept on driving. I'm saying, am I ever going to get to the end? Where I mean, you know, it's like you know, it never ended. But my other favorite story about Talladega, and this is an uh, involves an individual that you and I both knew very well. He's sadly no longer with us. We lost him about. Uh, I think what, about six or seven years ago, um, one of the best PR guys in the business, Denny Darnell. Yes. Um, I remember we, we were at Talladega. I think it was 2007, I think it might have been, or 2008. All I remember is uh, I was walking to the media center, and here comes Denny on a golf cart, and he basically hijacked me. He says, Jerry, get in the car, or in the golf cart. And I said, where, where are we going? Where are we going? He says, no, come on, j- trust me, get in the golf cart. And, he's, and I will never forget him saying, he says, you're from the North. You're a Yankee. You've got to experience this. And I'm going, oh, God, what's this going to be? So he takes me down you know, into the uh, the area where all the fans are in the in the uh, in the pit area. And uh, he, you know, so it's there were maybe about 50 people in this area. We were they were all eating and everything. Like that. He says, come on, sit down, sit down, sit down. So I sat down and he says, hold on, I'm going to get you a plate of food. I said, OK, fine. So he gives me a plate of food and he puts it in front of me. And I'm thinking it looks like chicken. OK. Take a bite, tastes like chicken. So, and, and it has some barbecue sauce on top of it all. So I said, hey, this is pretty good barbecue chicken. And everybody started laughing. And I said, uh-oh, what did I say wrong? He says, Jerry, you just had barbecue alligator. <laughs> and I'll oh. never forget that. It's one of my <laughs> favorite stories because it looked like chicken, tasted like chicken, but it sure wasn't chicken. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I got a quick one for you too. We'll sure. go here, but... uh. Uh, first time I ever had venison was from Davy Allison. And really? Of course, he was from Hueytown. Mm-hmm. And he said, Here, this is venison. You got to try it. You got to try it. I said, man, I am not into that. You got to try it. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. And we're in the garage area of, of Talladega. So I was like, okay, whatever. And <laughs> I tried it. And it was okay. He said, isn't that the greatest thing you ever had? I said, well... <laughs> well, I don't know about I don't know about the greatest thing I've ever had, but it was not bad. But he was he was pushing me really hard to try it, and I did, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad it you know that was my first taste. But um, yeah, and then I, I, I've got many many Davy Allison stories. But Davy was a good friend, and he was like, "See, I told you it was really good." It's like, yeah, it was really good. <laughs> but, well, uh, well, yeah, it was okay. But yeah, okay. and. And then there was some, you know, I attended some of the, some of the Allison family picnics there in the, in the, uh, uh, garage area that would used to be annual events. It was a lot of fun doing that, but Allison family I'm very close to and love them all. And, uh, we lost a few, but, uh, good people, very good people, very close friend with Bobby and Donnie and see them. They live in my area here in North Carolina now in in Salisbury and, (laughs) and Mooresville, but uh, yeah, Davey was a good friend, and I loved him dearly. And good, good buddy. Exactly, miss exactly. him a lot. All right. Well, speaking of good buddies, my good buddy Ben White. Uh, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to wrap it up here for episode number 81 of a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. We'll be back with episode number 82 as we continue on our march towards episode 100. I'm looking forward to that. We'll probably, I think, if I if my I'm correct about this, and I don't have a calendar in front of me, but if I'm correct about this. We're going to probably hit episode 100 somewhere around New Year's Day or in that era, in, in that area yeah. of time. So looking forward to, to that. It might, might be a little bit right after New Year's, but it's what a way to celebrate 2023 with episode number yeah. 100. Too. It'd be so, fun. It'd exactly. Be fun. So 
All right. So for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thanks everyone for tuning in and listening to us. So you're on the lifetime of NASCAR. I, I, I did it. Almost got through the entire show. I almost, I, I know because we, this used to be called a lifetime of NASCAR podcast and we changed it about two months ago and we became a lifetime in motorsports podcast. And I keep on telling myself, you're not going to say a lifetime in NASCAR. You're not going to say a lifetime in NASCAR. So what do I do? I say a lifetime in NASCAR. I, I got through almost every single episode, uh, part of the episode and I still, Still missed it. So a lifetime in motorsports podcast, episode number 81. So again, thanks everyone for tuning in and have a great week. And we will catch you next time right here on a lifetime in motorsports podcast. Uh, I'm Jerry Bunkowski, Ben White. Take care, everyone. We'll talk to you later.